0: Welcome to the podcast of Ideas, I'm Rob Lyons. Earlier this week, Parliament finally passed the European Union Brackets Notification of Withdrawal Brackets Bill, the so-called Brexit Bill. Once royal assent is received, the government will then be free to trigger Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty and the formal process of the UK leaving the EU will begin sometime between now and the end of March. That would appear for now to end the discussion about whether the UK should leave the EU, But what kind of departure should it be? What should the UK's relationship be with the remaining EU member states? Given that 27 other countries have to agree to whatever deal is negotiated, are the terms of that relationship really in our hands? Is it time to put divisions around remain and leave to one side and now start to form new alliances about the way forward? To discuss this, I'm very pleased to be joined by two people who might well be interested in finding some common ground on this issue, but could also be miles apart in other ways. Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk and author of A Short Guide to Britain's Divorce from the EU, Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? Luke Gittos is law editor at Spiked, as well as an author and regular speaker at the Battle of Ideas Festival. So, let's just start by setting out a few stalls. Ian, I know you've been fairly Eurosceptic in the past, but you've also been an outspoken supporter of remaining in the EU, so why?
1: Yeah, indeed. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say I started a campaign pretty reluctant Remainer. At no point did I think I would ever support going leave, because it was so obvious that this was a reactionary spasm, you know, led by Nigel Farage, or at least Farage's politics. Mm. By the end of it, I would have danced with, with, you know, with, <laughs> with a parade towards the, towards the ballot box in order, to, in order to vote for Remain. And I would still now, if given the chance, vote to Remain. Um, it is a vehicle for some of the most malign, inward-looking, nativist, backwards, political views in this country, and the sum effect of it so far has been a severe degradation in the standards of discourse, not just in where we're aiming to go, but also in the manner in which we argue about it. So yeah, that's uh, pretty much my journey over the last year.
0: Okay, Luke, why do you think the vote Britain was right to vote to leave?
2: Well, I voted to leave because the EU is undemocratic, uh, it's racist, it encourages a eurocentric immigration policy which leads to the deaths of many thousands of migrants every year in the Mediterranean um, I uh, was supportive of the British people's view that it had effectively sought to bypass the will of the people on important uh, political questions it was built and established in order to do that so I was very celebratory of the leave vote and I Remain optimistic now. I think there has been this climate of uh, catastrophe from certain parties in the Remain uh, camp who are basically seeking to present the job of leaving the EU, you know, the sort of bread and butter of leaving, the kind of negotiations, the bureaucratic work that needs to be done, as so complicated that we just simply can't do it. We can't leave the EU because everything associated with leaving the EU is so complicated and the ramifications are potentially so significant. I'm just not buying that argument. I think we have a process of negotiation. We have to go into those negotiations um, with, uh, with confidence and optimism. And I think if we do that, there's absolutely no reason that the kind of catastrophic future that certain parts of the Remain can be predicting... Will come to pass.
1: Okay, so if we look, can can I just just start chatting now? So I mean, if we look at the timetable that's on offer by Article Fifty, which was invented by opponents of people leaving the EU, specifically a timetable structured around punishing a country as it tries to leave. That is two years. Now, Barnier has said, uh, Michel Barnier for for the European Parliament, has said uh, the last six months of that are going to be involved with votes at Brussels. And there's a general understanding, I presume that you probably agree, that there's not much substantive negotiation work that's going to be done for the first six months because we've got the French elections, we've actually got the Dutch elections this week, then the French elections, and then the German elections, where Merkel will be quite distracted by Schultz's rather meteoric rights. So we're probably looking at about 12 months of quality negotiating time. Do you think that it is possible to negotiate, as you say, all of the complexities, whichever way you look at it, of what we're trying to do in those 12 months?
2: I mean, the answer is I don't know. I'm not a trade expert. I find it remarkable that so many members of the Remain camp have now geared out themselves to become experts in international trade, and Ian is one of many who have put this argument forward. That, it's called again, research. Well, no, but the, the idea is <laughs> very none, of you, none of you are experts. Sorry, so in no one gets trade, to talk about it. There thing. are an army of experts out there who are ready to do this kind of work. Now, I'm not going to sit here and give you a detailed plan uh, as to how I think I sh- we should treat negotiating around in the innumerable different industries that need to be negotiated around, but neither should we sit here and say that because we don't have this fixed plan, because uh, uh, David Davis doesn't have this fixed plan, that the entire project of leaving the EU is doomed or that it was not worth engaging with in the first place. But to to be clear,
1: do you accept that that most trade negotiators and trade specialists do not accept that it is enough time. So I'd say, just personally, in in talking about the book, I probably spoke to, let's say, about 20 of them. Not a single one of them thought that that was a a realistic time frame. They thought between five to ten years was a realistic time frame. So, I mean, do you accept that they don't think it's enough time, even if you admit that you don't know whether it is or not? I can Mm -hmm. accept
2: that the trade experts that you've spoken to might not think it's a long enough time. Well, I I spoke to plenty of believers by the way. Look, these people are all lawyers, right? There's an army of people out there who are willing to be negotiators and who may take a different view. The reality is, I don't know, because I haven't uh, gone out and uh, spoken to every single trade expert in the country, but nor has anyone. And the point is, what the Remain Camp are now seeking to do is basically uh, they pick an industry. They say, right, well, let's take pharmaceuticals, for example. Let's take the worst possible uh, outcome from the negotiating process that we can. And then they push it onto the leave side and say, well, this is what you've done. This is what you're going to do to pharmaceuticals. The reality is just not that. You've got an army of people out there willing to negotiate You know, by the way, probably on enormous contracts on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry in order to get the best possible deal. Now, I'm not saying that that's, uh, I've got no insight to offer on the real on the realism or unrealism of any proposed deal. But I don't think anyone on the Remain side has either. Well, that's very bizarre. I, I don't see on the
1: basis that you don't understand it, that you think nobody else that has done the research will talk to the people who do do this for a living and necessarily misrepresenting their views. And they come at it... By the way, most of these guys don't even care about Brexit. Half of them come from the US or from other parts of the world. They're completely indifferent, apart from the fact that they find it very compelling as an intellectual exercise as to which way it ends up going. And yet the universal view... I mean, I... I I haven't spoken to a single one, and that includes some, you know, leave voters in the UK who do this for a living, do not believe it is doable in that time scale. So, when we look at certain industries, and what troubles me is this view that you sort of got to, well, they're using it to stop the process. Now, it has to be said obstacles are obstacles. If one cares about the British national interest, one says, how is it that we're going to get over this obstacle? So, we take, you know, let's take um, abattoirs, okay? Like, there's an EU rule that says you've got to have a European vet... Sorry, I beg your pardon. You've got to have a veterinary presence independently in the abattoir, or else you can't sell into their market, okay? Now, 95% of the vets that we have doing that job in the UK are Europeans, because British vets uh, grow up and they, you know, imagine themselves curing the family dog and all of that. They don't really want to watch cattle being slaughtered for the whole of their career. It's very bad. Badly paid as well. So we have that problem. It is a fixable problem. We would need to come up with an immigration category to allow them to do that job here because if we don't, we don't have enough time to train up ours and we won't have an export market in meats. That has to be addressed. And this attitude, which is to say, oh, well, look, you're raising problems because you're trying to rest, it's just not helpful. It is not. Treasonous or against the interests of the public will or anything like that to raise what the problems are for you to say I don't understand is one thing for you to say David it's okay that David Davis doesn't understand I find very troubling in
0: that. okay no before we I started off with the with the, the principles of this thing I, that may have been slightly a mistake that was supposed to be a warm up for for what was going on next which is regardless of the complexities of these things and leave or remain the politics of the situation is we're leaving unless something extremely dramatic happens, either Parliament rebels on mass, or a, huge, a very significant proportion of Parliament rebels en masse against the, the consequences of what happened. Uh, we're, we're going to leave. Right? And, you know, there's various different arguments about whether triggering Article 50 is irrevocable or not, and, and so forth. But on the assumption that we're leaving... What should we do what what should be what should Britain be looking for in those negotiations? I, I mean, in terms of you know, freedom of movement, free trade whatever I mean, what, what do you think we should go in as our first you know, this is what we'd ideally like if we could get it I mean Luke will you
2: well I think the, the treatment of uh, EU citizens uh, in this debate has been appalling. Uh, I think we should guarantee their rights as soon as possible. Um, and ensure the rights of uh, British citizens elsewhere. I think that should go without saying. I think we should also um, have a go, uh, although it's extremely difficult, um, to 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 effectively realign our systems of regulation on the UK and the EU. That's going to be an important stage in this process and it will solve a lot of the problems that Ian's talking about. It's not going to be that big a problem because a lot of the systems of regulation in this country mirror um, EU regulation anyway. It's not like that we're we're dealing with countries with completely different standards of food care, and animal welfare and all the rest of it. We're relatively aligned already. So there is an enormous amount of bureaucratic work that needs to be done in order for it to actually happen. Um, and I think we should, I think all parties are interested in a free trade agreement. I think that's what um, is in the best interest of Britain and in and, and the best interest of Europe. Uh, and I think that that's perfectly doable. I think we do need to regain uh, political control over immigration in this country. What I think that will do is not allow necessarily for a greater imposition of immigration controls, but it restores the argument to British politics, which I think is absolutely vital, because what we have at the moment is a kind of weaponisation of immigration. Immigration is blamed for an awful lot of social problems in this country. Now, in order to start picking that apart, in order to start putting forward a positive case freedom of movement. It's vital that people in this country feel <laughs> as though right they have hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, it doesn't make any sense. Hold on a second. It's vital that people in this country feel as though they have control over immigration. Now we know that from the Ashcroft polling that the first two concerns of people voting in the EU were immigration uh, and sovereignty. Sovereignty first, immigration second. It makes sense that those two things are tied up because at the moment they are inextricably linked. Immigration is something that currently we don't have sovereignty over. By restoring sovereignty to the British people over the issue of immigration, we can start to have the kind of political arguments which change people's minds about immigration. We can start putting the case, a positive case, that freedom of movement is a good thing. And I'm a big principled believer in free movement, but I see and I recognise that what is vital to the freedom of movement cause is winning the democratic argument in favour of free movement. As long as immigration is controlled by an unaccountable body like the EU, you are not going to win that argument with people because they will always say that they are uh, prevented from having uh, their voices heard because they can't, they don't feel as though they have adequate controls over the laws. I think until you bridge that gap, you are not going to get a decent discussion around freedom of movement, and you're not going to change people's minds on the issue.
1: Yeah, I just it's unspeakable. So, I mean, to, to clarify, you want to protect freedom of movement by scrapping freedom of movement?
2: I want to argue for a new model of freedom of movement which has nothing to do with EU freedom of movement. The EU has been very successful at co-opting the idea of free movement. Of course it doesn't agree with free movement because it limits almost all immigration from outside of the EU into Europe. So no, I don't adopt the EU model of free movement and I want to see an end of it. I want to argue for a principled approach to free movement with the people of this country to convince them that immigration is a good. And how do you think that's
1: going so far? Do you think that we're winning the immigration debate now that we've had months and months of people going on about freedom of movement? Or does it feel like we're in the most toxic place imaginable in this debate by giving in to these demands?
2: It doesn't feel like a toxic place for this debate. I've heard the arguments of people saying uh, that UKIP's politics are winning over. I think we've seen with recent by-election results that just couldn't be further from the truth. UKIP have become a spent force... UKIP itself, because all of
1: its ideas have been adopted by the government. The reason that there's no one bothering to vote for them is because even Nigel Farage listens to the Prime Minister now and says, I've waited for years to hear a Prime Minister say all of the things that I believe. UKIP are in government... In ideas, if not in their actual political status.
2: The point being is that we now have a political fight to win. I'm not suggesting that we have won the fight over free movement. You delivered a I'm defeat to our out. side and then say there's a fight to win. No, no, you it? like whether well, we victory. just lost the very no, thing do, that
1: you claim to be protecting.
2: It's a real victory because I think once. Sorry, what's the victory? The victory is once people in this country feel as though they have control over their borders, they are far more amenable to the idea that they should be opened.
1: I just find this extraordinary. In the you know, a few years ago, no one talked about immigration and Europe being the same thing. This was always Nigel Farage's plan. He wanted to link up those two issues to toxify and bring down to a really quite nativist, mean-spirited vision. His attempt to get us out of the EU. Now, here we are. Now, suddenly we're saying, oh, well, we can't win a fight against immigration on free movement. When just a few short years ago, people's memories are exceedingly short all of a sudden. There was no talk about this. Actually, and I have to say, Blair was saying this in a speech the other day, and I didn't really like the sound of it. Him saying, well, actually, people are much more worried about, you know, people coming from Somalia and Syria and all of that than they are Poles. Now, I have to say, I think that's true. I don't think that this is a thing that you're going to give them free movement and they will suddenly settle down and change it into another idea. They will simply start pushing it further and further and further until we respond entirely in our policy agenda to the most sort of inward looking, mean-spirited elements of this country's personality. And yet then we suddenly have a bunch of people going, oh, what, what, what a victory for our side in, in freedom of movement. It doesn't make any sense. Well, hold on a second, because there's, there
0: are a few competing tendencies here. First of all, that I think that um, leaving that a lot of leavers are actually have got you know friends who are poles and whatever, yeah, and decided to leave anyway. Secondly, the practical difficulties that you started to raise earlier in terms of. You know, oh, actually, hold on a second. We're going to need these vets. Oh, hold on a second. we you know, we, we still want to keep you know people working in the city of London, or we still want to have researchers coming in from 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 other parts of the world, and so on. So once the practical difficulties of 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 of, of limiting immigration starts to become clear, well, in reality, even if the rhetoric stays the same, is is the reality that. Numbers are going to actually stay pretty much yeah. the same, we've had this. And that's you know, the problem: tens of thousands it? of uh, of. Uh, yeah, we're going to reduce immigration to tens of thousands. Uh, policy from the Conservative government for a long time with absolutely no indication that immigration is falling at
1: all. Well, I mean, this is the whole issue. So right now, if you look at not actually the last immigration figures, but the ones before that, we see that freedom, you know, uh, people coming in from Europe, people coming in from the rest of the world are basically at exactly the same number. And the reason for that is because economically, we need immigrants coming to this country, we have an ageing population, we need to, at the very least, buy ourselves time to increase our productivity in the economy from our domestic workers, which involves training them up. And for that, you need a bunch of working people coming here and paying taxes. We need immigration. Everyone that's involved in government knows it. Most people in Parliament know it. Most newspaper commentators know it. Nobody ever talks about it because it is the great unsayable thing. So instead, what have we done? We keep on presenting. And this wasn't just over Brexit. This was happening under new Labour when the doors were actually relatively open. It has to be said immigration poisonous anti-immigration rhetoric coming under Tony Blair, under Gordon Brown, under David Cameron, and now under Theresa May. No policy agenda that follows from it delivering what is actually said. So you cement and you cement the original impression without delivering anything for it, stoking up this sense of grievance. And the real danger is, yeah, we're not going to do it. We absolutely will not do it unless we want to destroy this country economically. And where does that leave us? That suddenly leaves us by encouraging this vision and yet doing nothing to placate it. So instead of when we had a chance during this referendum people to come out and make a case for immigration and for freedom of movement, I was horrified to see some people on my side, liberals and some left-wingers, somebody come out and speak against freedom of movement, basically because they want to stay within majority mainstream opinion, rather than doing something to challenge the nonsense of these ideas that urgently need to be addressed, or else we're going to ruin ourselves either economically or politically.
2: Well, I think this... Exactly right. I think what we need to do, I agree with all, everything Ian said about the sort of anti immigration rhetoric, all of it has been pretty grim to watch. Um, having said that, I also thought it was really grim that all, on the majority of the Remain side, they took the EU as being a cause for free movement. And for all the reasons that Ian has described, most of our immigration comes from outside the EU, the EU itself is actually very hostile uh, to non uh, European immigration. Um, we need to put a new case for freedom of movement. We need to now rethink. Uh, the terms in which we do it. And I think a starting point, actually, will be taking it beyond this kind of uh, purely pragmatic, numbers-based approach of, to immigration that a lot of uh, people on the Remain side seem to have as, well, we need them here because we have to, uh, you know, give them jobs in abattoirs or something. Uh, the point is that if you believe in freedom of movement, uh, you believe in the right of people to move around, not because your country happens to need them at any particular time. And I think the immig- one of the big problems with the immigration discussion has been it's so, it's so tied up with uh, notions of practicality and notions of pragmatism. I think there is space to make a more principled argument here, and I think that I just don't... We'll make it then. I don't, well, well, instead okay, of making we're a we're Brexit right. argument, that ends
1: freedom of movement. I mean, I mean, your attitude at the moment is, no, hold on, we're going to end freedom of movement in this one area where we've got it, because they don't offer it to every single country in the world. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. You can't just stop. you're never going to get to the point where you have a policy, you know, by the British government or anyone else, saying it's freedom of movement for all people. You have to go, if you want to get rid of borders in the world, and I would want over a 100 to 200 year sort of process, my ideal, great political ideal, getting rid of borders. You have to do that in incremental steps. Anything else is plainly nonsense. Now, we have this area of free movement where the state does not have the right to tell individuals where they may and may not grow. One of the greatest triumphs for liberal politics that we've seen in the post-war era. It is now being dismantled by this country, which typified how to make it succeed. And it's being done with people going, oh, but don't I we'll fight for freedom of movement. It's just a nonsense argument praising the very thing that you are helping to destroy.
2: I think what Ian is typified is this confusion between uh, open borders and no borders. The EU tends to believe uh, in no borders, which can actually be a really destructive uh, frame of mind, frame of reference, if you disregard a country's borders in the way that the EU has done, we've seen it in Hungary basically. Uh, We've seen it in their approach to Turkey, moving uh, immigrants back uh, to to Turkey, forcing them to take more uh, uh, and financially uh, punishing them if they fail to take a certain number of migrants. This actually disregarding borders is the approach of the EU. And that's really problematic because... It's completely uh, undemocratic. It, uh, borders are important because they give people a sense of uh, the community to which they belong, the uh, political uh, culture which they, uh, in which they inhabit. It's important that people have borders and have a sense of borders. But what, what do you mean when you say
1: borders in this context? I don't quite understand. Because you, well, you, you think it's okay for freedom of movement, presumably, of goods and services and people. So you're just talking, are you trying to say demos? Is that what you mean?
2: What I'm saying is that there is a difference between opening your borders in the context of a political community and having no borders or having your borders ignored by a transnational organisation. So what is not
1: ignoring them in this context? Not
2: ignoring, well not ignoring... I mean you're saying
1: that you're you're happy with freedom of movement of people and presumably goods and services. So, So what is not ignoring them?
2: I'm not happy with implementing a policy of free movement in this country at the moment because I recognise there is no political mandate for it. Okay, no, that's That's fine. But but when you say that there's a distinction between open borders and no
1: borders, what exactly is the distinction between those two things under the assessment that you're making?
2: Well, I've just explained it. Open borders is having a border in place that you choose to open. Having no borders is having a transnational organisation that you have effectively no right over your political territory. Right. They are two very, very important. going to things. take away the same And, the EU, and it's difference going to be there? between the EU model of free movement and the kind of model of free movement that we need. I mean, getting this back to what perhaps we want from the negotiating process, right, and, and, what, and, and how we can and find our way through this... Um, I think the kind of thinking that's emergent from the Remain side really does us no good at all because this kind of catastrophic thinking, it takes us no further. Okay. It merely presents the problems, it presents absolutely none of the solutions. And a lot of the problems they present are sort of bureaucratic and things that we can work on. But you've already, said
1: that, well, you've already said that you don't know what the answer to those problems are or whether any of the assessments of it are valid. So how could you possibly say that you now that they're well, bureaucratic the, the, or we could ar- work the through? The
2: argument them. seems to be that these questions are unanswerable. I can say for some... No, the argument is not that
1: at all. The argument is that it can be done but you need negotiating capacity and you need time. Now we have one year in which to do it and we don't have enough negotiating capacity. So there must be an answer to that question, which is something that respects the British national interest. It's not the same as to say that these are unanswerable questions, they are fundamentally questions okay, so about logistics. What
0: are, so what are what are the potential possible answers to that question?
1: Well the first thing is you do is you need time. So you say instead of having this two year timetable, which is really one year we're going to set up an interim deal that lasts us for about seven to ten years. It's not politically palatable. It's not sayable. It is the realistic timetable in order to do what we do. Then you go on a massive recruiting drive. That's going to cost a huge amount of money because these are mostly private people that you need. You need trade specialists. They can't, we can't just train up civil servants and chuck them in a room full of these guys in Brussels. They're going to eat them for breakfast, let alone the guys in Washington who are almost as severe. That is the core of the, of the situation. In order to do that, and in order to maintain the current status that we have, for instance, with customs and currency of origin checks and the rest, means we have to go into a, a holding place. And the best way to do that, the easiest bespoke deal, uh, a bigger part and the easiest off the shelf solution to that, would have been to join the European Free Trade Association, a British creation that spans across several countries and through that to join the EEA. It would have meant that we would have had a bit more control over freedom of movement. It would have meant we would have at least delivered on the mandate to leave the EU, but we would buy ourselves enough time in order not to do something catastrophic to our economy. Because of the political demands around Brexit, we have failed to do that. We've signed up to this insane timetable, and now the quality of our lives, the quality of the incomes of the British public, is at risk because of this hysteria that we're seeing over this kind of timetable and the ultimate ends of what we're trying to achieve.
2: I think the real danger here is we get away from the principle. So I would sort of flip the question on on you and say, assuming there was a kind of bureaucratic way through this mess that you've identified, that you identify in your book, would you then fall down in favour of leaving the European Union? Because all of the arguments you make are basically arguments against the way that matters are proceeding at the moment. But they're not a positive case for the European Union. And you were someone who conceded that he was pro- uh, uh, skeptical of the EU and came and one and round conceded to, I admit won, it happened so so let's let's take this hypothetical question mm. you have this team of fantastic super lawyers who managed to identify and figure out a way of for example rectifying the problems with regards to mutual recognition of regulation dealing with trade tariffs you there's you know some impact on industry uh, but it's it's manageable that's that's the opinion of at least Uh, Four or five articles that I managed to Google up today. Assuming, let's assume that those people are right. Morally, would you then fall down on the side of leave? Would you then be happy with leave proceeding?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would. I think that at the moment we have, you know, for instance, the plan that I just put forward to you involves leaving the EU. I mean, if you leave, you know, if you go into EFTA and join the EA through that, you're not an EU member. So that is delivering on the mandate. The question is. How do you respond to the vote? You have this completely vague, mixed up referendum. OK, now you can say as very clear cut. I mean, I do not accept that it is clear cut. As you yourself say, you're pointing to the Ashcroft polling on um, freedom of movement versus sovereignty. Now, those are very different agendas. Ashcroft's conclusion at the end of that, which I thought was as from the data I've seen, I think is the right one. is that Most people get asked, are you happy with the way that things are right now? And their answer was, no, you know what, I'm not at all. Um, now, that is not a mandate for any one particular thing, but getting out of the EU. Now, you deliver on that, especially, by the way, when you have a very, very close result. And as people do not discuss, this was a very, very close result. I mean, 1.9% was the difference. Uh, well, actually, I suppose it would be double that, but you take my point. We also have regions of the UK. I mean, obviously, Scotland, obviously, Northern Ireland. If you look overseas, you're looking at Gibraltar. You take places like London and most of the major cities who are not on board with this. So what is the correct response to that? The correct response is a measured, moderate one, one, for instance, like joining the EEA, where you also have the advantage of buying yourself time in order to deliver a realistic economic prospect. What have we seen? We have seen the exact opposite of that. We have seen the most radical interpretation of the vote that we could dream of, minus, I suppose, the frenzied dreams of some of the, the really pernicious figures in Parliament. And we have seen a completely almost religious zeal for delivering on it, rather than taking the views of anyone else. So, yeah, my answer is yes. The vote came in. We have view. But by the way. I think that Brexiters... I'm sorry to keep on going on. I, I will shut up in just one moment. I think the Brexiters have actually not done themselves a service by not pursuing a moderate example. Because what will happen over the next two years is that the economic circumstances that we face will become more pernicious. The political circumstances that we face, as we saw with Nicola Sturgeon's speech the other day, announcing a second referendum, will become more pernicious. And actually the chances of people going, no, you know what, it's Remain, we're going to reverse course on this entirely, will actually grow over the next two years. So even if I was a hardline Brexit. And desperately wanted out of everything, I would have wanted a compromise position in order to maximise my chances of success.
0: Okay, I want to move on to this this question of how how. One of the one of the debates in the the passage of the Brexit bill was about Parliament having this meaningful vote at the end of the negotiations. But is there a, a place for a, just a much more active uh, role for Parliament in actually determining what, if you like, the mandate is? Because uh, it seems to it seems that that's that's come entirely from um, the government, or maybe the government has just decided to kind of pre- present a public position, regardless of what it actually thinks, because it knows that as soon as it says we want control of immigration, regardless of uh, numbers and whatever, as soon as we say we want control of immigration, most of it's off the off the table. Single market's off the table. All the other stuff is off the table because of the four. The four freedoms um, that are uh, constituted in, in the EU. So maybe they're just that, that's just a, a bit of front as well. So that, there's the, how Parliament gets involved in this is a, is, a, is a big question, and also how to what extent actually there is common ground between. People who voted to leave and people who voted to remain on some of these issues. For example, it seems to me that a lot of remainers are actually quite sceptical about immigration and need to be won over on that issue as well. And now that the, we've had the yeah. vote, you know, people people like Corbyn are actually reacting to their grassroots, saying, "Well, actually, we are not. We're not keen on all this immigration." You know, a lot of Labour voters are thinking, "Well, maybe we should have some control over it." Take up any of that that you want to, Luke. I mean,
2: first off, I'll say. I think that if uh, we fail to deliver on ending free movement, leaving the customs union, leaving the free market and uh, and uh, uh, ending budget contributions, I think there will be a feeling amongst the general public that Brexit has not been carried out. Now I think the way that we deal with that is, and this is difficult because one thing that's been really interesting throughout this process is that our institutions of representation have been really called into question in a way which uh, hasn't happened for a long time. So. Politicians are wondering whether their obligation is to the referendum result, to their constituents, uh, to, or to their own judgment. And none of these are new questions, they've been around for a long time, but it's been really interesting to see how they've been playing out. Now I think the, the fundamental of it has got to be each MP has his constituents breathing down his neck, his or her neck, and that's the way it's got to be. So they have this popular mandate... Which I think cannot be interpreted in any other way other than those things that I mentioned. Why? They weren't on the ballot paper? Well, this is the hilarious thing, the argument that it wasn't on the ballot paper. Well, that, that is tend to not. be
1: how we make dis- democratic decisions, doesn't it? I mean, you it's put it on the ballot paper way. and people vote on it. If it's you put the EU on the ballot paper, then that's what the vote was about. If you put the Customs Union on it, then that's what it would have been about then. But seeing as it wasn't there, you don't have a mandate in which to leave it.
2: I think it's completely disingenuous to suggest that when people went into the voting booth, they didn't know what they were voting for. That's the reality of Well, it. no, how do you it's think that you know? What they were well, voting because, for? Because I have, I'm, it requires a degree of faith in the British people to understand the very terms of the debate. Jesus so Christ! On, well, it's, it's absolutely twenty not.
1: to forty percent of people in polling throughout the referendum campaign and immediately afterwards were saying that they either. Wanted to stay inside of the single market, or they weren't prepared to put immigration put above economic concerns. So now, how does that translate into wanting to leave the single market, or there being some magical I, mandate that you've suddenly discovered is, by is, having faith in the British people? Do you
2: think that people went and voted to leave the European Union on blind faith that they would manage to remain in the in the free market? I think you just, single market is called it. So I think that the, the
1: well, what does that mean? The, the, I mean, the, so now the polling is, is wrong too.
2: Yep. Well, the poll might well be wrong. I mean, the point okay. is, I'm so not, only I'm not your saying, personal but intuition but counts, counts for the, the, the mandate. The polling is. takes you so far. The fact of the vote was that people went into that knowing the connotation. How do you know? Of the vote. Well, how do you know that? Like they, how do you know what they okay, thought about the single market when it wasn't think, on the ballot paper? One of, one of two different views of the British people. You can either think the British no, people that is not that what this is about. having thought about it, discussed it with their friends. Debated it, thought about it for a long time, and understood the connotations of what they are voting for. Or you can think they went in thinking, "Well, I'm just going to get rid of the EU without any idea of what that entails." What that entails. You know, you're but insisting on in translating it, saying
1: government. that the British public Basically, are stupid. You're it you're is not working, that at all. It is working. to say that what you have is a mandate for what is on the ballot paper. Now you want to come and say that actually they were involved in a very technical discussion about the customs union and had settled on this opinion rather than another. Now that seems to me to be self-evidently nonsense.
2: Well. Well, the point being is this. I think, in general, the government now has a mandate to do those four things. Uh, Ian can disagree with that. Um, I think that in the lead-up to the discussion, we knew what the vote would mean. In the lead-up to the vote, we knew what the vote would mean. In the aftermath of the vote, we knew what the vote entailed. Uh, So the government, I think, now has a mandate to proceed. I thought that throughout, and I think they still have a mandate to proceed. Now, having said that, um, Parliament should be involved in the process of negotiations, and Parliament should be holding government to account. And I think the, um, the ultimate uh, way that they will be judged on their involvement will be in a general election. Um, and that's how it should work. That's how our representative democracy works. Well, there isn't
1: another uh, general election until we're out. So what you're saying is the Parliament just needs to shut up until the whole process is done.
2: I'm not suggesting they shut up. And there will be constant, I'm, I'm sure there will be constant th- debate and discussion. No, about meaningful votes rather than debate. Well, OK, so look, the point is, I have no objection to a meaningful vote. But you have to accept that when it comes to a meaningful vote, there will be two constituencies at play. There will be an MP's particular parliamentary constituency, and then there will be the referendum vote that happened in June. And those two things will be in, they could be in conflict. And then someone will have to decide how to resolve that, and then they will be judged Well, that's their to a general election. Nevertheless, do you think
1: that the government has the power to take us out of the EU with no plan onto WTO terms without any parliamentary vote able to stop it?
2: Yes, I think they have the mandate to do that. And I think so, sorry, just, just out of interest,
1: you, you think that when referendum. the British public voted in, on, in that ballot box, that was something they gave the government the power to do, to leave the EU with no plan onto WTO terms?
2: What I think the referendum did was represent, was Parliament delegating out, it represented the delegation of Parliament's authority out to the British people on this particular question of leaving the EU. I think when the British people returned that vote result... It gave the government a mandate to leave the EU. Uh, and I think that the mandate uh, was constituted of uh, the, things that I, uh, the things that I identified. Now, p- Parliament will um, continue discussion on the terms of leaving. If it gets to the point where we've left, we are on WTO rules, the worst possible scenario as far as the is concerned. As far as uh, anyone that understands it, okay, the problem okay, is concerned. Worst possible, you know, we end up in e- economic catastrophe, then both the government and Parliament will be judged on their involvement. In, in that process. Jesus Christ, that's insanely that's, uh, that's, complacent of you. So, so that's that and that's how it's got to happen. Um, and I've got but the more So I mean you've practice, given up
1: on understanding the problems and now you've given up on having any input in it before we reach a catastrophic conclusion and by the end of it you say well, well it's so, all right so, so, because right. a bunch of people Okay, for okay, it.
0: okay. <laughs> gentlemen, gentlemen, uh, we have more than over on our time, so final thoughts just
2: briefly Ian.
1: I mean this is a very bad idea and we should change our minds.
2: Okay. Luke this is the best moment in European history in the last 100 years, um, and the kind of problems that the, uh, that the remains are putting forward can be resolved, they should be resolved, and uh, more power to it. Okay, gentlemen, that has
0: been a very, very lively debate. Thank you very much for your views. Uh, thank you for listening to this edition of the Podcast of Ideas. If you would like to listen to more of our podcasts, please go to www.instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.